found a new good overly priced beverage. Which one? It's like tea with hops in it. <laughs> All right. Does it have any alcohol? It's no, it's alcohol free, but it's like it's a nice alternative to coffee in the afternoon. I feel like I get sick of coffee at this time. Mm. <laughs> This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a flotilla of boats bringing fishermen, shrimpers, and climate activists together protested in the waters surrounding a hotel and casino where a gathering of oil and gas industry executives was taking place. The New Orleans City Council on Thursday unanimously passed a healthy homes ordinance to create new protections for renters. And voters in New Orleans gave the city council oversight of the mayor for some key hiring decisions. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hey, Josh. Hey. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Josh, you took a boat ride last week. Tell us about that. I did. Yeah, we um, we, we even uh, managed to stay mostly dry uh, <laughs> for the duration of it. Um, mostly is, is is the operative word, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I can get into this in a bit, but we kind of had something of a, a nosedive um, on, 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 on the way back. And we ended up, you know, most of us ended up with some wet shoes. And I, I felt very badly for the one, one, one of the women sitting towards the front because this was her first boat ride in her entire life. And <gasps> I was trying to explain to her, you know, afterwards that this is not exactly a typical experience. She was, yeah, she was, Oh, uh, excellent luck. But, um, to tack back to the story here, uh, more directly. Uh, yes, I, I was in the Southwestern corner of the state in the uh, Lake Charles area. Um, last week, there was a, a conference summit being held um, with different oil and gas executives, uh, representatives from um, uh, the the liquefied natural gas industry, um, in particular, along with Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser and um, uh, Senator uh, Bill Cassidy. And yeah, they, they, they were there to discuss, you know, all, all manner of goings on in, in the world of natural gas. Another name for that, um, parenthetically here is, is methane gas, which is how I refer to it at times in in the article, uh, because natural gas is composed primarily of methane, which is a, a powerful greenhouse gas. And there, there's there's all this proposed construction of these different LNG liquefied natural gas terminals throughout the state, including some in um, that part of the state, the, the southwestern part of the state. Um, there are already um, different facilities that that are that are operating um, there, and basically these fishermen and shrimpers joined forces like like you were saying Carolyn with um, climate activists from th- throughout the, the 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 Gulf region to say enough is enough we're we're tired of um, the proliferation of these these terminals they they've already had a um, you know severely negative impact on the fisheries that we depend on 
the the air that we breathe um mm -hmm. the the noise pollution um we we can't we can't live like this anymore we we're we're at an absolute breaking point and you're up there celebrating you know this apparent uh, increase in demand um with with events happening throughout the world namely Russia's invasion of Ukraine and you know the the pot potential for uh increased profits there potentially and and meanwhile our our lives are falling apart because of of what you're doing and you're planning to do more and and that it's it's been a bridge too far and 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 this is just insult to injury and one of the the one one of the fishermen uh, who participated in this boat convoy, his name is Travis Darter. He was piloting the boat that I was on. Really uh, fascinating um, person with a really interesting background and and life story. He's from Ile de Jean Charles. He's he's an indigenous fisherman. He's he's a member of, of one of the uh, the tribes. And and he had to move essentially. I mean that that was my understanding. He had to move from. Ile de Jean Charles because climate change and and there's not going to be an Ile de Jean Charles at some point uh, very soon because of sea level uh, rise. The, yes, exactly. Um, so he left because his home isn't going to be there anymore, mm. and he found this new home in uh, in Cameron, uh, Louisiana. He's raising a family there, has his his life there now. And to him, it felt very much like how we grew up in Ile de Jean Charles. And now this is being threatened. And I mean, at a certain point, what what is someone in his position to do, essentially? Yeah. That's what that's what he was that's what he was trying that was the message he was trying to get a point, uh, get across. How many boats were out there? Uh I was I was trying to keep a, a running tally. I think when we left this um this park where uh the it was like the original staging area where where everyone met i think there were six or seven boats and um you know we made it you know traveled via the river to the um hotel and casino the golden nugget hotel and casino and and we're circling around the water there and then we were joined by more vessels uh and and these these were like these are the very big shrimping vessels mm. um so really quite quite a sight and i want to say there were at least four to five of those and and then there were also additional smaller vessels so you know altogether if i had the ballpark it i'd say something around 20 or so mm. and were there signs were they waving i'm i'm Calling yeah. to mind, you know, Greenpeace riding up next to big whalers and things, you know, with their totally signs flying, and they had signage. They did, and um, some of them were using ma imaginative language, um, mm -hmm. fa fairly memorable. One of them said "frack off," <laughs> you know, and and there were there were all these different um, chants that they were, I guess, singing is 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 the right word or chanting you know not to be redundant um i i did my best to write down one of them which was ringing in my ears as as they were chanting uh, i included it at, at the end of the story and it goes uh people gonna rise like the water gonna shut the lng down hear the voices of my great-granddaughters say keep it in the ground hmm. i i thought that ever had a had a ring to it personally yeah did any of the folks on shore seem to uh, react to any of the protests? Yeah, there were people in 
the conference who were lining up at the window um, overlooking the river and um, I don't want to say gawking necessarily, but definitely observing this, uh, the, the protest there. And I'd say at least a couple people in the, the protest group were able to access the hotel itself and they, they, they captured video from inside the hotel. And, um, it's kind of interesting. The, you, you see these people looking out into the river and one of them remarks that, you know, do these people even know how clean natural gas is? Like, I don't, I don't know what they're complaining about. Hmm. Um, you know, meanwhile, natural gas, like I was, uh, saying before is composed, um, of between 70 to 90% of methane, you know, and I think for most people when, you know, to, to hear the word methane might conjure, um, you know, a different impression than the, the term natural gas. Right. Is there a productive way for these two groups to come together and, and talk? Can they find some middle ground anywhere? You know, that, that, that is a great question. Um, I, I have to say that my sense is that the, their, their interests are just so different, so misaligned and, you know, it's in a certain sense, it's a zero sum proposition mm. uh, or, or situation, even, even if the, you know, the LNG executives and the oil and gas executives were to, let's say, take the concerns of these particular fishermen and shrimpers to heart and say, you know, for whatever reason, we're, 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 we're not going to build these in your communities and, and we're going to go someplace else. You don't have to worry about us. I mean, the, these are still communities that, you know, are, are right on the coastline and, you know, sea level rise, right. the, 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 the same conditions that, you know, forced Travis and, and his, um, community, fellow community members to leave their homes would, would be the same conditions that these facilities would be contributing to. So yeah, it's, it's one of these things where I, I, you know, unless they, unless they go head first into pure renewable source energy, which I don't think is their business model, the business model that they're pursuing here, then I just think that their interests are so disparate, you know? Right. right. It's a great story. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen, editor of The Lens. As a reader of The Lens, you already know that we prioritize truth over profits. Our reporters work tirelessly to provide public service journalism that you can trust because you deserve to have a go-to source for the news that matters most to you. And now, through the end of the year, Newsmatch and the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation will match your new monthly donation 12 times, or double your one-time gift, all up to $1,000 per individual, making your gift even more important. Please give today at thelensnola.org and help sustain your trusted source of news. Thank you, and happy holidays. Michael, you're busy. The city council passed a new renter's protection law last week, which was both celebrated and criticized by local housing groups. 
Tell us about this law and why did it get controversial? Yeah, so the law is called um, the, the Healthy Homes Ordinance. Um, and, and the idea is really to enshrine some, some you know, renters protections in local law. Housing groups have complained for a long time about the lack of recourse that, you know, renters have. If, if you know, something is wrong with their house, they don't have proper AC, don't have proper electricity, uh, have mold. Um, and yeah, again, the lack of recourse that renters have traditionally had here. Um, so the law, um, you know, it, it sets out certain standards for what a rental unit needs to provide. So again, that includes things like heating, cooling, hot water, um, lack of mold, things like that. The law also has some anti-retaliation clauses in it that will make it easier for, uh, that will hypothetically make it easier for renters to report problems with their with their housing, either to the city or directly to their landlord without fear of being evicted or having their rents raised, you know, as kind of retribution for that. Um, but, you know, I, I, some housing advocates, you know, still celebrate the law, but, but it was significantly changed since it was first introduced. Um, the original law would have had these kind of mandatory periodic inspections for many housing units in New Orleans. And housing advocates had argued that this was really an important part of the law because um, as it stands now, you know, the, the system really relies on renters reaching out and reporting issues, um, which again, you know, traditionally there's not been a lot of protection uh, for a renter who reports an issue. And, and you know, I think you heard advocates say that the anti-retaliation laws that, that stayed uh, in the Healthy Homes Ordinance are really important to giving uh, renters confidence to report these issues, but they complained that the law as a whole still left it, um, left the burden of enforcing these rules on renters themselves, rather than having a more proactive government, you know, regulation of it. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, that was removed, it was pared down, but it, it's still a significant uh, uh, change to the status quo. So it lost some of its teeth, I guess. Why? Did they cave to lobbyists or something? What happened? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there were some advocates that certainly said that this was due to pressure from landlord groups. I mean, at, at an initial hearing, um, landlords certainly showed up. Many landlords showed up in, in droves to kind of uh, uh, oppose the law. Um, I'll note here that there were landlords also in support of this law um, that that showed up, um, you know, in support of it. So so both were represented, but there were a lot of landlord associations that came to oppose the law. Um, I talked to J.P. Morrell, uh, who was uh, the, the lead sponsor on, on the uh, ordinance, um, and, and what he said and what he told the public uh, was that this really came down to the fees that had been included in the original law. So in, in order to pay for the extra, you know, uh, uh, the, the extra manpower to actually do these mandatory inspections, the original law had a number of fees associated uh, with registering for the law as well as the inspection. So each rental unit would would have had to pay a $60 fee in order to register with the city. Um, in, in the final version, that's now free. Um, also, each inspection would have come with a, a, a charge as well. So, you know, what Councilman Morell said is basically uh, that at this point with, with the city's affordable housing crisis, that, you know, what he heard from many voters was that they found it unacceptable that, you know, their rent might go up at all because of this. Um, and that, you know, basically some renters were afraid that these fees would be passed straight through to renters. Right. Um, now, advocates for the original law argued that, you know, the $60 fee, even if it was passed through to renters, 
Um, that's, you know, comes out to about $5 a month and wouldn't have a significant impact on the city's affordable housing. Uh, but again, that, that was the justification given by Councilman Morrell. Okay. And what did, how did affordable housing advocates react? Yeah, th there was some mix. Um, you know, Andrew Nika Morris, uh, who's a very prominent housing advocate here, um, she was kind of on the, the more hardline end of things, basically saying that uh, the law had been gutted to an extent that it shouldn't even be passed and it should be, you know, rewritten and passed kind of in its original strength. Um, you know, there, there were other advocates, however, um, that that many advocates who stood up and said, listen, this isn't what we wanted. Um, you know, we still think the mandatory inspections are important, um, but but the the protections in this law are just too important to to kind of step aside on. Um, you know, a lot argued that at the very least, it'll build a foundation. You know, um, the law requires the city council to come back in a year and assess whether it's been successful and effective. Um, and so, you know, the, the, I think there's a thought process among some that in a year we could come back and, you know, potentially add those mandatory uh, inspections back into the law. Um, but yeah, so again, you know, I, I think that the, the disappointment of the amendments really overshadowed the whole meeting. Um, but again, but but housing advocates, many of them were very insistent on pointing out that this is a very important law, that having the, these uh, uh, housing standards on the book, having a registry of every rent, rental unit in New Orleans, these things will be, you know, really, and the, and the anti-retaliation laws, hmm. you know, all three of those will be really important uh, for renter protection. Okay. And voters approved an amendment to New Orleans Home Rule Charter which now requires the mayor to get approval from the city council before hiring certain department heads, such as the superintendent of the NOPD or the director of the Department of Public Works. What was the amendment about? Yeah, so this was uh, a charter amendment that was first introduced uh, again by Councilman J.P. Morrell. Um, and yeah, basically, you know, the, the city council prior to this amendment, it already had the power to, to fire many department heads. So some of the most important positions in the city, like the, the superintendent of the NOPD, director of public works, director of uh, safety and permits, that, that really hold a lot of sway over the day-to-day -day functioning of the city. Um, the, the council already had the ability to fire these people. Um, however, what this charter change does is it requires council approval before uh, the, the, these appointments are made. So you see this, you know, for example, on the federal level, you know, appointments need to be confirmed by Congress. So you'll see someone go before Congress and ask questions, um, you know, before they're actually confirmed. So it'll be a, a similar system here. Um, and yeah, you know, the, it's, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, the, the council still now needs to go and, and create rules and some sort of standards around how they're going to actually go about this, whether there'll be mandatory hearings, mandatory forms. Um, so all that still needs to be figured out. And the fact that it wasn't in the charter before was somewhat unusual, right? Because the vast majority of mayors have to do this with their city councils throughout the United States, yes? Yeah, I, so, you know, I, I can't speak for around the United States, but th there was a report put out by the Bureau of Governmental Research, a local think tank here, uh, and, and they looked at 20 peer cities across the U.S. and found that 80% of those um, required uh, council approval of either all or some department heads in the city. So, yeah, th this isn't out of the out of the out of the ordinary. OK, had there been some problems with the appointments? before and so why was the amendment introduced in the first place 
Yeah, you know, in some ways, this started as as a little bit of a tug of war between, um, you know, Mayor Latoya Cantrell and and members of the city council, namely, you know, uh, J.P. Morrell. Um, this was introduced in February of this year, um, which was kind of this real, you know, height we saw in tensions between council members and Cantrell. There was a real um, kind of power struggle at the time, um, you know, around that time, you know, uh, related to the smart cities investigation um, that the council had subpoenaed the administration, the Cantrell administration ended up suing the city council. It was, you know, not, not the cleanest time in the relationship between the council and the mayor. Um, and, you know, it, it was also during a time when the council was criticizing the Cantrell administration over its inability to rein in, um, you know, certain types of violent crime. Uh, and so when the, the ordinance was first introduced, um, Councilman Morell, he, he had raised publicly, you know, two uh, of Cantrell's appointments that he took issue with. One of them was current NOPD Superintendent Sean Ferguson. Um, the other was a former city official, Peter Bowen, um, who had been a controversial hire. He was uh, put in a pretty, you know, elevated position in the city. And, and it, you know, his responsibilities included overseeing the regulation of short-term rentals in New Orleans. Um, he was a former short-term rental executive who actually had some uh, financial stake in uh, a local short-term rental company. Uh, and, and he was later let go after uh, a a drunk driving arrest uh, during which he tried to use his city position allegedly to get out of the arrest. Anyway, he ended up being fired and, and that was one of the um, city hires that Morell had kind of pointed to as, you know, I, I wish the council had kind of gotten a heads up on this and had been able to vet this before rather than after. Mm. Um, but, but I think since the ordinance is first, was first introduced, um, you know, I, I think, Councilman Morell has kind of downplayed, um, you know, this being a direct confrontation with the mayor. Um, you know, he's pointed out accurately that, you know, this charter change will have much bigger impacts on future administrations than the Cantrell administration. You know, she has most of her leadership in place already. Right. Um, she's well into, you know, her tenure as mayor. So, again, th this kind of started at a, high, uh, at a time of high tension between Morell and Cantrell. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not going to affect Cantrell as much as future administrations. Um, I will say, you know, Mayor Cantrell uh, was was very, very opposed um, to this. You know, she she basically cast it as a uh, uh, as a challenge to her authority as mayor. Um, you know, she said that it would really clog things up and in, in bureaucracy, make it harder to hire people. Responding to that criticism, the council did add something to this that that will allow her to make temporary appointments. Um, and that's basically in case of emergency, uh, hurricane happens, someone needs to be appointed quick, the right. council can't meet on time. So, um, they, you know, I think they tried to adjust to those criticisms. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, uh, voters approved it by a pretty healthy margin. And they got it, it, it passed. Now what do they have to do in order to enact it? Yeah, so, so they're gonna have to pass, you know, again, some set of rules to govern how this is gonna go. I mean, ideally, you know, the, the Bureau of Governmental Research report said that ideally you would have some clear criteria here 
for why you would reject an appointee. And that's, you know, you basically don't want a situation where the council might arbitrarily reject a candidate for a position for some political purpose or something like that. So they said it would be important as the council goes through this to really lay out, you know, here are the reasons why we may reject someone, whether it be, you know, a charge of, of you know, he's not qualified or a questionable past or whatever it is, yeah. I think. Um, that might get more laid out um, over time. But I would expect them to move on that pretty quickly. Okay. Well, I guess that'll do it, guys. Thank you all. Thanks. Talk to you later. Okay. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Joshua Rosenberg, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor, Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.